morning, brothers and sisters. It's such a privilege to open the Word of God with you this morning. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians and chapter 1. We're actually going to look at verses 9 through 11 this morning. Next week, we plan to go through verses 12 to 14. I'd like to read this, uh, that entire passage this morning. So, um, if you would, if you found your place and you're able to, would you, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word? If you are looking in your pew Bible that you have in front of you, in the pew in front of you, that's page number 983. These are the words of God. Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Would you join with me in prayer, please? Our Father, we ask that you would please feed us and instruct us by your word this morning. We know that your law is perfect. It revives the soul. Your testimony is sure. It makes wise the simple. Your precepts are right. They rejoice the heart. Your commandment is pure. It enlightens the eyes. Would you accomplish that in us by the power of your spirit working in and through your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think all of us would like to learn to pray like the Apostle Paul does in this passage. There are several things about this prayer that I would say stand out. One would be the spirit of great thankfulness and joy that Paul expresses. He leads into this prayer with thanksgiving for what God has done in the Colossians, in the Colossian church. He ends with thanksgiving for the amazing work that God has done in Christ, this Thanksgiving sort of, it surrounds and infuses the entire passage with a sense of great joy, doesn't it? And at the same time, he's very realistic. 
He's not naive about the challenges facing the Colossian Christians as he prays for them. What he prays, as we might expect, is very focused on the glory of God. The central request of this prayer is actually found in verse in the first part of verse 10. It is the goal or the purpose of what he has been leading up to in verse 9. If we take a very literal translation of the central idea, it's actually two phrases that build on one another. The result of the wisdom and the understanding he has prayed for in verse 9 is so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's the first phrase. And that leads to the second phrase, which is literally, unto all pleasing. In other words, this is the goal that Paul has in mind for the Colossians as he prays for them. That they would walk in a way that lines up with the character of the Lord who has saved them and called them to himself so that God would be pleased with the fruit produced in their lives by his power working through the gospel. And identifying what is this primary goal or central request of Paul in this prayer helps us in a couple of ways. Number one, it's useful for showing us how the different parts of the prayer fit together. But number two, it also reminds us of something that should be a huge encouragement to us. Because the truth is, for many of us, much of the time, we have great difficulty feeling and experiencing the same emotions and affections that Paul expresses here in this passage. Instead of joy, we're often haunted by guilt. Confidence is weakened by uncertainty and doubt. And in some cases, thanksgiving is replaced by frustration and even a sense of anger towards God because we feel at times that he really hasn't come through for us. The language Paul uses here seems so lofty and idealistic. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, the strength and joy he speaks of feels so far removed from our daily experience, it all just seems kind of out of reach. And to make things worse, if you have a somewhat critical spirit or personality, you may look at other Christians and the condition of the church in general and conclude, well, I don't see them walking in such a way that pleases the Lord either. And it's easy for this to feed a sense of doubt or distrust in God's love and wisdom and provision because what you may feel, whether you express it in so many words or not, is that God really hasn't given you everything you need to live this kind of life. Maybe for others, maybe for super spiritual Christians who lived in the first century, but right here, right now, it doesn't seem to be working. And from there, of course, it's very easy to become depressed or angry, or both, because you want to ask, if God wants me to live this holy, obedient, joyful life, full of love and good works, and growing in my knowledge of Him, why doesn't He make things easier for me? Why doesn't God sort of zap me or something, so I start experiencing the kind of strength and joy and all these other qualities that Paul keeps referring to? But of course the truth is that God has given us everything necessary for life and godliness. 
And this is where I want to begin. This request for which Paul prays that these Christians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord that fully pleases him is itself a sign that God has not left you on your own. This desire to please God expressed uh, by Paul in this passage, but which every believer here can testify is your desire as well. Where did that desire come from? Remember, Paul is speaking with all the authority of an apostle of Jesus Christ. The words that he writes are inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is declaring to us the mind and will of God. So he didn't have to come up with this idea on his own and then think of a way to twist God's arm and persuade him to do something he was otherwise reluctant to do. It was God who created this desire in Paul's heart in the first place. And what's more, God has given birth to those same desires in your heart if you're truly a child of God. The same Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words has taken up residence within you. And yes, though you are in a battle where the the Spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh wars against the Spirit, that itself is a sign of great hope. Because there was a time, wasn't there, before the Spirit breathed new life into you and gave you the gift of repentance and faith, when you did not experience the same struggle that you have now because you had no desire or concern to live according to the will of God. And that previous life is described for us in numerous passages throughout the New Testament. For example, I would like to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. speaking about the great change that has taken place for those who have embraced the sufferings of Christ for their salvation and as the pattern for their new life, Peter says at the end of verse 1, 1 Peter 4, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And of course, he is not speaking there about sinless perfection, but he is speaking about a new direction in life. And he describes that in contrast with the direction of the old lifestyle. Picking up in verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then looking back to the old life, he goes on to describe that in verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Here's what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And the truth is they're so at home with that, they think it's quite surprising, quite shocking that that you no longer run with them in that same lifestyle. So that was your old life. What was it that happened to make you see the futility and ugliness of that old way of life? Well, nothing less than the fulfillment of what God promised long ago through the prophets. The removal of your old heart of stone, the implanting of a new heart that lives unto God, the indwelling presence of His own Spirit purchased by the blood of His beloved Son... So if God has paid that dearly and committed himself to that degree 
to your salvation in all its various aspects and elements worked out through time. Why do you feel as if God has abandoned you and really doesn't care that much whether you make progress in your Christian life or not? The truth is God is more committed to your sanctification than you could ever possibly be. This is not a prayer that God is reluctant to answer. He breathed that desire into you to begin with. He delights to answer that prayer. And when Paul prays for these Christians in Colossae, and when your brothers and sisters pray for you and you for them, and more than that, when the Son of God stands before the throne and says, look at this weak, struggling child whom I have purchased with my own blood. Father and Spirit, would you not see this work carried through to its completion? Do you think God will not hear? Do you think the Father will not answer? Do you think the Spirit will refuse to carry out the task for which he has been sent? The beginning of verse 9 gives us the link between what Paul is praying for, for the benefit of these Christians, and what it was that gave him his motivation and the underlying confidence to pray such things. And so, he says, and uh, in the original it's actually uh, more explicit than that, it says, because of this, well, because of what? Well, what he's been saying in the previous verses, in in verses 4 through 8. Let let me read those at this time. Should start in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. It goes on to say how they had learned it from from their fellow servant, Epaphras. In other words, the proclamation of the gospel to this group of Christians living in first century Colossae and their acceptance of that message filled Paul with thankfulness and joy that God was at work in their midst, and that's what leads him to pray the way he does in verses 9 through 11. And brothers and sisters, if what was said about these Christians can be said about you, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus, if you have a hope laid up for you in heaven, if you have heard and understood the grace of God in truth as it is revealed in the gospel then know that this desire to walk in a way that pleases God, expressed not only by Paul, but by all God's God's people throughout the centuries, is not a dead end. That longing has not been sparked in your heart only to be quenched by the difficulties of life and the defeats you sometimes experience in your battle against sin. This picture of the Christian life is rooted and grounded in the desire and purpose of God for his people. 
Of course, that doesn't mean we don't experience defeat and difficulty along the way. But, but ultimately, God's good purpose described here will not be thwarted. Well, that's first. That's implicit to what Paul is praying. But as we look further into the passage, we find more detail and more information that equips us for the battle as we see what exactly Paul has in mind. When Paul speaks about walking in a way that pleases the Lord, he doesn't leave it as a vague generality, making us fill in the blanks whatever way we happen to think is best. In fact, there are a couple of phrases here at the end of verse 10 that help to show us what this life that pleases God actually looks like. And the first phrase would be bearing fruit in every good work. And the second one is increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, clearly, these are two essential elements of the Christian life. He doesn't explain here what the relationship is between the two, but we know from the rest of Scripture that you can't have one without the other. So Paul talks about the defiled and unbelieving in Titus 1, verse 16. He says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. So a claim to know God that is not backed up by works is a false claim. And works that are not rooted in a true knowledge of God are not actually good works. We can go back to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and find the purpose of our good works as he describes them. In uh, chapter 5, Matthew 5, verse 16, he says we are to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So by that standard, works that are meant to glorify self are not actually good works at all, no matter how noble and beneficial they may appear. Well, how does this work? How do we know whether our works are glorifying God or just bringing attention to ourselves? Well, when we glorify God, we are putting His character and worth on display. And therefore, works or deeds that glorify God are those which reflect something of His character. That's an idea we see later in the same chapter, in Matthew 5, don't we? What is God like? Jesus says He's merciful and giving. He makes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. And He, goes, and he says that's the basis for how we are to treat others. Not just our friends and those who love us, but our enemies, those who hate us and persecute us. Showing genuine kindness to those who are not kind to us is a good work because it exhibits something important about God's nature. He pours out His grace upon those who are ungrateful and undeserving. It also reveals God's character when we show compassion to those who are in need and those who cannot repay us in any way. God is a God who cares for the widow, we're told in multiple 
places throughout Scripture. He cares for the widow and the fatherless and the alien stranger. He calls us to do the same. Never to earn our salvation, but to put on display the nature and character, uh, character of this merciful, compassionate God that we serve and claim to know. So you see how these ideas of knowing God and bearing fruit with our works are so interconnected. As much as the New Testament makes it clear we can never be saved by our good works, it is also clear and emphatic that good works are both the purpose and the evidence of our salvation. We're created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. That's Ephesians 2, verse 10. And according to Titus 2, 14, Jesus gave himself for us, and he goes on to explain the purpose of for that, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then just a little later, the next chapter, Titus 3, verse 8, he says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So what pleases the Lord Jesus Christ in the lives of his followers? What God is eager and committed to accomplishing within his people is a zeal for good works accompanied by and connected to an increasing knowledge of him. And of course, when we speak of knowing God, we mean more than an academic understanding more than the ability to recite and define dozens of his various attributes. We are talking about having a personal sense of the greatness and beauty of what we discover about him through his revelation to us. This is God's will for us, as Paul describes it here by inspiration of the Spirit. And because it's God's will, and you have experience this in your life, I'm sure, because it's God's will, it's something we cannot be content without. An increasing sense of his greatness and glory, along with a corresponding desire to serve others so that they too may see the awesome nature of this amazing God and learn to live in obedience and right relationship to him. Well, it sounds wonderful. This is the part we might say sounds rather idealistic. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He knows the kinds of obstacles and dangers we face that keep us from living this kind of life to the fullest. So he prays as well for a couple of things that are necessary for us to have if we are going to experience this life that truly pleases God. The first of these requests is how he began in verse 9. We need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, which comes about through spiritual wisdom and understanding that can only come from God himself. And as we read through the rest of Colossians, we get an idea why this is so important to Paul. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. He tells us in chapter 2, verse 3. In other words, if we are going to find God's wisdom... We are going to find it in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to tell us specifically why he brings this up 
in verse, chapter 2, verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. It turns out that there are those who want to draw these Christians away from the fullness of wisdom and revelation that God has given them in Christ. And so he warns them in a fairly extended passage in chapter 2. He warns them of those who would, who would take them captive by philosophy and empty deceit. That's verse 8. According to human tradition, according to the principles of the world, and not according to Christ. In verse 16, he instructs them not to let anyone pass judgment on them in matters of food and drink and observance of holy days. Even though those commands had their basis in Old Testament law, the point is they were inferior to Christ. They've always pointed forward to Christ. And to be drawn back to those old signs and shadows is to be drawn away from the reality that is in Christ. Verse 18 includes a warning about those who insist on a lifestyle of, of phony self-abasement. Drawing attention to themselves with spectacular claims about angels and visions. They impose all kinds of man-made regulations upon themselves and on others. Paul tells us these things have an appearance of wisdom, but they promote self, not Christ. And so Paul's assessment is they have no value to help us in the fight against sin or to bring us any closer to God. So in the face of all this fake wisdom, with all its claims about how to boost your standing and your walk in Christ, Paul's prayer and our need is that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And where do we get that? Only in Jesus Christ. The revelation of Christ is what unlocks the true meaning of life. It's in Christ that all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. He will tell us just a little bit later in, here in chapter 1. It's in Christ that we know God fully. And it's through Christ our lives are brought into increasing conformity to God's will. But just as Paul warned these Christians about influences and ideas that would seek to pull them away from Christ, we face spiritual dangers in our own day, some more obvious than others, that threaten to draw our attention and our affections away from Christ. And we have to admit, it's so easy for this to happen. We can get sucked into the sinful influences of popular culture. We can start to accept the assumptions and norms of the unbelieving society around us. Or we can withdraw from society and start to pat ourselves on the back how God must be pleased because of the high standards we set for ourselves. And we fall into spiritual pride. In fact, we can create a Christian subculture that looks different on the surface from the unbelieving world we're so eager to oppose. And we can congratulate ourselves on our superior views of morality and literature and art and politics and education and still be driven by self-advancement and self-glory, which turns out not to be so different from the world after all. The way of wisdom is not defined 
by how many degrees of separation you create between yourself and the world. It's not defined by the list of rules that you decide to live by. The way of wisdom is the way of the Savior who willingly gave himself up on a cross. God's plan for us is that our lives are rooted in that wisdom. The wisdom revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what equips us to know his will and walk in a way that's pleasing to him. But there's still more to what Paul prays, another element that he knows is necessary for our continued progress in the Christian life, and that's found in verse 11. We may know what it means to walk worthy of the Lord. We may have a good understanding how to grow in our knowledge of Him and how that manifests itself in good works. But we also know from personal experience how difficult it can be to live these things out on a daily basis. Our enthusiasm and motivation for good works begins to fade. Your volunteer work at the downtown mission or the pregnancy resource center or the English class for international refugees is no longer as rewarding as it once was. And it's not just our works. We know our works are supposed to be fueled by our knowledge of God, but the truth is we lack the strength to pursue our knowledge of Him, don't we? Bible reading and prayer become stale. We're disappointed by the level of fellowship we receive or don't receive at care group. We start to wonder if we're really going to be able to hang on in any meaningful way. So, Paul prays that we would be strengthened with all power according to his, that is, according to God's glorious might. So I don't want you to miss whose might is at work to strengthen us with all power. This strengthening takes place according to his glorious might. And notice how high Paul's expectation is here. We're supposed to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And at this point, we really start to question if Paul knows what he's talking about. Because we feel as if it's all we can do just to hang on. And he expects us to endure and to have patience, which is literally long-suffering, putting up with difficult situations and difficult people, and all of this with joy. That takes a lot of strength. And clearly the source of that strength is, is not found within us. It's found outside us. Ultimately, that is what is so encouraging about this prayer. We're not left to our own resources. All, the, all these qualities that we find so lacking within ourselves, the joy, the patience, the strength, the wisdom, they're not lacking in God. And it's not like God hasn't figured out the way to get them from, from, from Him to us. God is not sitting in heaven saying... Boy, I wonder how we're going to deal with those Christians at Redeemer in Fort Worth. That Wes Duggins, he's come up with some difficulties. I just don't know how we're going to handle. Even when you cannot see it, God is at work accomplishing his purpose. 
He can, he can zap us into immediate obedience if he so wishes, but more often he chooses to train us through long and difficult experience to gain wisdom, to produce good works, to grow in our knowledge of him, to learn perseverance, to find lasting joy. This is the path that brings him pleasure, that brings him glory. And you may wish he did it some other way, but he is at work producing a frame of mind in you that says he knows what is best. And after all, this is what you're seeking for, to please him in every way. Do you believe that God is able to accomplish what he says he wants to accomplish in this portion of his word? If this is what you want, and this is part of your profession of faith, if you're a believer, if you're a member of Redeemer, you have professed this. You want a life of good works. You want continuing growth in your knowledge of God. And so you should be strengthened and encouraged with the assurance that God wants it more for you than you want it for yourself. It's not about three easy steps to immediate victory, okay? It's all about growth in perseverance and trust in the God who perseveres with you. So it's not that God does not give us everything we need to live the life that pleases Him. We find wisdom. We find the motivation to serve Him. We find growth in our relationship with Him. We find the strength to persevere with joy. We find every provision from His power working in us through the ordinary means He has given us. The problem is not what He has given or hasn't given us. Our problem is a lack of trust and contentment with His provision. And I think I can still hear some of you saying, well, if the problem is my lack of trust, it still means He hasn't given me the faith that I need. And the answer is, he may be using this portion of his word to produce that faith in you. He may be using this prayer of the Apostle Paul or the prayers of your brothers and sisters who know your sins and your flaws and your weaknesses. He may use their encouragement and their accountability to give you the help you need. God has not run out of ideas or used up all his resources when it comes to equipping you for the life he wants you to live. So do not be dissatisfied with the means that he has ordained for your growth. The pathway of growth is not easy, but neither is it complicated. Trust in Christ. Call to him for the help you need. Fill your mind with his word. Open yourself to faithful brothers and sisters who can assist you in your walk. And do not believe the lie of the enemy, the accuser of the brethren, who says it's too hard, it's not worth it, Christ is not enough, God will not sustain you. Brothers and sisters, your weakness is an opportunity for God to display his strength.
Find your strength in his abundant provision. Let's go to him in prayer. We have confessed to you, Father, that we have no strength in ourselves. It's good for us to see this because it drives us to you. It drives us to the revelation of yourself we find in Christ in the gospel. We pray that you would be at work within us by the power of your spirit. Produce within us the strength that we need. Produce within us a zeal for good works. Cause us to know you increasingly on a on a deeper and more intimate basis. And would you be pleased with our lives as we learn to live them in faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray it all in his name. Amen.